Hello everyone, my name is Tom and welcome to a new episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go into some depth on various, mostly modern, historical issues with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. And in this episode of History Matters, we are continuing on with the European Neutral series from exactly where we left off last time by looking at Denmark and its experience as a neutral power during the interwar period right up to the point of German troops actually crossing the Danish border in the fateful month of April 1940. Hopefully that sounds of some interest to you. And before we make a start, I would like to pay a quick tribute to some of the best reading on this topic. Uh, first up is still Patrick Salmon's work, Scandinavia and the Great Powers, 1890-1940, an excellent comparative work. There are a couple of really excellent journal articles also, especially uh, Limits of Leverage, the Anglo-Danish Trade Agreement of 1933 in the Economic History Review, as well as the Welfare Defence, Military Security and Social Welfare in Denmark from 1848 to the Cold War, in a journal entitled simply Historical Social Research. And finally, I would also recommend Olga Shishkina's Denmark Between the Wars, The Reasons for Defenseless Neutrality, which didn't have much depth but was a really great overview, which, to be fair, is sometimes exactly what you need. All of these works are definitely worth checking out if you have an interest in this topic. And now it's time to kick things off. This time, with the second of Denmark's two national anthems, this one entitled King Christian Stood by the Lofty Mast, which, as the name suggests, is both a royal anthem as well as a national anthem, uh, most often played at royal and military events in Denmark. The lyrics are about the actions of heroic Danish and Norwegian sailors fighting against the rival kingdom of Sweden, and was adopted in 1780 and is uh, one of the oldest national anthems in the world. And so, here is a little bit of Hong Christian, as it is known in Denmark. Okay, so let's begin with something about the Schleswig plebiscite. Although Denmark had maintained its neutrality throughout the First World War, the French desire to neuter the power of its continental rival Germany would now play into Denmark's hands. The Treaty of Versailles, signed in June of 1919, contained two articles that set out provisions for the return of the former Duchy of Schleswig to Danish hands via a series of plebiscites, which were held a year later, in February and March of 1920. Finally, the Danes had got the plebiscite that had been promised by the Austrians and Prussians more than 50 years earlier after the defeat in the War of 1864. There was a great deal of debate, both within and outside Denmark, about where precisely the lines for inclusion within the plebiscite should be drawn, but the lines were settled in consultation with a famous Danish historian of the time, Hans Victor Clausen. To ensure fairness, 
the German administration of the region was forcibly withdrawn and replaced by a small force of French soldiers to oversee the vote. Although in some areas, the German civil administration was never withdrawn at all. There was also the issue of the so-called optants, those citizens who had been expelled from the area by the Prusso-German authorities but who still possessed Danish citizenship. These individuals were invited to return and were able to participate in the plebiscite, although, as a large number had migrated to the US in the meantime, this was difficult to accomplish. For the purposes of the vote, Schleswig was divided into three zones, a northern, central and southern zone. The final result was that a majority of North Schleswig, almost 75%, voted to return to the Kingdom of Denmark, although even here, in some of the larger towns, there were still disgruntled German majorities. The result in the second zone, in central Schleswig, were extremely disappointing for the Danish government, with around 80% of its citizens voting to remain with Germany. As a result of this extremely poor result, the referendum in the small part of southern Schleswig, Zone 3, was never held, as it was felt that the result would be a foregone conclusion against Denmark. Without so much as firing a shot, Denmark had fulfilled its single overriding foreign policy goal, and was now a satiated power with no further territorial demands, and on June 15, 1920, the entirety of Zone 1, North Schleswig, was transferred back to Denmark. From the perspective of Danish foreign policy, it was hoped that this final settlement of a Danish border issue would, in the long term, lead to an improvement of relations with Germany, and better ensure Denmark's chances of remaining neutral in the future. Yet Germany never formally recognised the result, and it also left Denmark with a 10,000-person German minority, who became more vocal after the rise of the Nazis in 1933. Rather than settling the Schleswig question once and for all, the return of North Schleswig would become a permanent source of anxiety to the Danish government, and was a factor in the policy of appeasement towards Germany in the later 1930s. In addition, many Danes were themselves extremely unhappy with the result in central Schleswig, and despite only 20% voting to rejoin Denmark, Many Danish nationalists, including the king, Christian X, still felt that their rights to this part of southern Jutland were inalienable, and the territory should be annexed regardless of a disappointing vote. The social liberal government disagreed with this assessment, and moved to annex only the northern part of Schleswig. The result was a constitutional crisis, that has since become known as the Easter Crisis, with the Danish king ordering the prime minister, Karl Theodor Zal, to annex the disputed central territory and the Prime Minister refusing to comply. After heated discussions between the two, the Prime Minister felt he was forced to resign, and Christian X then moved to replace the entire social liberal government with a conservative caretaker cabinet that would be more willing to annex central Schleswig. This was a huge misstep by the Danish king, leading to major demonstrations and the possibility of revolution. Given the revolutionary atmosphere in Europe at the time after the war, it is remarkable that the Danish king was willing to take such a risk over this issue. Faced with complete revolt, Christian X was forced to back down, and the power of a Danish monarch to act independently, especially in terms of foreign policy, was, from this moment on, severely curtailed, being subsequently forced into the role of a more traditional constitutional monarch. Another unexpected diplomatic problem that came out of the whole Schleswig issue was that of the many veterans and war invalids who had served in the German army suddenly becoming Danish citizens. The diplomatic problem was over whether the nascent Danish welfare state should solve the burden of pension obligations and the cost of medical treatments 
to those who were former German soldiers. The War Invalid Act of 1920 ensured temporary care of all those living in Schleswig who had been injured in the war, but also demanded that Weimar Germany reimburse the Danish state for all costs incurred. Negotiations with Germany took place until 1922, when a bilateral treaty was concluded, and Denmark grudgingly took over all financial responsibility. Despite such problems, the net result of the war was that with Germany's fall as a great power, and the Soviet Union initially mired in a civil war and economic backwardness, the Baltic was now finally an area of low tension, and Denmark faced few threats to its position as a neutral. Denmark no longer had territorial or revisionist aims. Its interest in foreign policy became self-directed, and aimed at the protection of its territorial integrity, independence, and economic self-interest. This period also saw Iceland move closer to independence. Under the Act of Union of December 1918, it became a sovereign state under the Danish crown, with a right to demand a revision of the Act at any time after 1940. Iceland now had full theoretical control of its own foreign affairs and defence, but for the time being, asked the Danish government to represent it in those areas. There was certainly still little demand for total severance of all links with Denmark in this period. The territory of Greenland, however, proved to be a different story. In 1921, Denmark formally extended its claims to sovereignty over the whole of Greenland, having previously limited its claims to West Greenland alone. Norway immediately disputed this claim, stating that it had historic links with East Greenland, and there was eventually a diplomatic crisis when Norwegian adventurers laid claim to the territory in 1931. It was resolved only when the International Court of Justice at The Hague decided in favour of Denmark in April of 1933. Also relating to wider Scandinavian issues, the common success of a commitment to neutrality by these nations during the First World War did again raise the possibility of a common Nordic neutral bloc. With the issue over the border with Germany hopefully settled for the time being, there were now potentially fewer obstacles for cooperation on defence issues by the Scandinavian nations. Yet during the 1920s, there were no official meetings of the Scandinavian foreign ministers, and it was not until the 1930s that twice yearly meetings started to occur until April of 1940. However, commerce, trade and economic cooperation remain the main concerns of these meetings, with military matters rarely raised. The fact was that the geostrategic issues facing each Scandinavian neutral were too varied to realise the prospect of a Nordic defence union. Sweden and Finland remained preoccupied with the threat to the East, posed by a swiftly rearming Soviet Union, and of subsequently little interest in helping to guarantee Denmark's new border with Germany, whilst Norway was preoccupied by its long coastline and possible incursion by British naval forces. In 1933, the Danish Foreign Minister attempted to define the Schleswig border as, and I quote, the frontier of the North, and that an attack here would be a matter which concerned all the Nordic countries. But no favourable response was received, and by 1937, the same Danish Foreign Minister was forced to admit but a military alliance between the Scandinavian countries was a utopia which could never be realised. The best that could be hoped for in the event of a German attack on Denmark was sympathy and moral support from Denmark's fellow northern neutrals. Although Denmark, Sweden, Iceland and Norway did sign the declaration regarding similar rules of neutrality in Stockholm in May of 1938, it meant little in practice, and in 1939, when the Danish Foreign Minister again asked for possible military support, in the event of hostilities with Germany, he once again received no positive responses, 
apart from some off-the-record positive assurances from the Finnish Minister of Foreign Affairs. In spite of the many points of similarity in their political and democratic cultures, their respective economic interests, including policies on trade, were also too dissimilar to lead to any broader political union. In the end, Denmark was forced into signing a non-aggression pact with Germany in 1939, while the other Scandinavian states refused to do so. And now something on the issue of Danish defence. Early debates after the First World War about Danish defence spending quickly turned into a political struggle over how to interpret the new international environment and what strategic consequences to draw. In 1919, the government established a defence commission to look into the responsibilities in the organisation of the Danish army and navy to see how much of their equipment and doctrinal foundation had been made obsolete by technological, operational and organisational innovations during and after the war. The four main Danish parties were in complete disagreement. The Social Democrats demanded disarmament. The Social Liberals wanted to reduce the Danish armed forces to mere surveillance units and introduce an all-volunteer army. The Liberals just wanted more modest spending cuts, while the Danish Conservatives wanted to keep the forces as close to the 1909 defence law levels as possible. The new Defence Act that followed in 1922 was a compromise, but reduced defence costs and reduced the size of the army from 52 down to 35 battalions, although conscription was to remain, even though only a minority of men in any specific age cohort would end up being actually drafted, with recruitment into the army being decided by lottery. The Compromise Defence Bill of 1922 was to be upended by fresh elections in Denmark in 1924, that saw the fateful coming to power of a social democratic government, which began an era of almost uninterrupted social democratic governments in Denmark all the way to 2001. Initially, however, the Social Democrats did not command a majority in Denmark's upper chamber, the Landsting, and so were forced to cooperate with conservative and right-wing groups there on foreign policy issues. Danish social democracy was strongly inclined towards pacifism, and, unlike the situation in many other European countries, their success in Danish elections now allowed them to try out and put some of their ideas into practice. When confronted by the rise of German industrial and military might, the traditional response of many on the Danish left had been, what can we do? Faced with such terrible odds, the best course of action to the Social Democrats and Social Liberals was unilateral disarmament in order to reduce the perception in Berlin of any potential threat to the North. To many members of the Danish Social Democratic governments in the interwar period, the fact that the Danish army had been constantly reduced in size during the Great War and that Denmark had still retained its independence and neutrality was evidence enough that a commitment to an expensive armed neutrality was pointless. Instead, so the Social Democrats theorised, the savings offered by unilateral disarmament could then be ploughed by the Danish state into ambitious social welfare programmes. In the words of Social Democratic politician Hans Nielsen, we Social Democrats love our country and our people and our language and our history as fully as other citizens in this country. Of course, we do not measure our love of country by the number of cannons, but rather by the number of good and happy homes, with nice furniture and nice clothes, and the daily bread on the table. End of quotation. This led to an entirely new conception of neutrality, one that rejected armed forces and instead embraced a sort of social neutrality, a neutrality that emphasised the internal strengthening of Danish social and cultural bonds in the event of any future war or occupation. Such an idea 
was not completely new to Danish politics, and after the loss of Schleswig and Holstein in 1864, the motto of many on the Danish left had been, what we lost externally, we shall gain internally. If a war with Germany could only lead to defeat, why not bypass the pointless exposure to the killing and destruction of war, and instead focus on building and maintaining the social solidarity that would allow the Danish people to continue on largely as before? As a security doctrine, military defence gave way to the welfare defence, with the welfare of the population being a prerequisite for having something to be defended in the first place. This approach to defence was epitomised by a 1933 act that was designed as a partial replacement for conscription, replacing classic military training with training in democratic citizenship, usually taking place in camps with activities combining physical work, sports and education. Thus, the idea of military service was transformed from a duty to participate in the country's military defence into a duty to work for the state with wider social purposes. However, by no means everybody on the Danish left agreed with such a position. At a meeting in Copenhagen, a fellow Social Democrat made the observation that, and I quote, It goes without saying that a small state cannot indefinitely keep at bay a great power, which wants to, and is being allowed by other powers to crush it. But it is far from being without importance whether it chooses to resist. The position in the eyes of a world that harder-pressed Belgium possesses is very much better than it would have been had she acquiesced and let injustice during World War I happen unopposed. End of quotation. But such individuals were outnumbered in Denmark, and Denmark increasingly pursued a policy of defenceless neutrality in the later 1920s and 1930s. Peter Munch, the foreign minister of Denmark between 1929 and 1940, and a famous pacifist, argued that it was pointless even to be able to hold on for a few days, since foreign assistance is unlikely to be forthcoming. The Foreign Secretary even developed a theory called neo-neutrality, whereby a small country preserves the right of non-involvement in a war, even if it is physically occupied, a scenario that eventually arose in April of 1940. This new vision of disarmed Danish neutrality was hotly contested by Danish conservatives and by the King, as well as by the Danish Commander-in-Chief, General Vif, appointed in 1931. Even when faced with such extreme financial pressure, the Danish army and navy refused to cooperate and presented no unified front to their civilian counterparts in terms of presenting a coherent plan for the future defence of Denmark. The Danish armed forces had little standing in wider Danish society in this period, especially after they had foolishly backed the king during the 1920 Easter crisis over Schleswig. These groups would face off with the Danish government in a series of so-called disarmament bills that would move through both Danish houses of parliament. Danish liberals, as well as conservatives, were taking advantage of their slight majority position in the upper chamber, the Landsting, to block these disarmament bills, demanding that Denmark maintained a credible defence and not reduce the Danish army and navy to mere border guards and watchmen. In conservative and liberal eyes, it was deeply unpatriotic, and they believe that, and I quote, to disarm, to the extent that some political parties seem to prefer, will be tantamount to placing the Kingdom of Denmark at a par with Panama and Luxembourg. End of quotation. In March of 1931, this running conflict came to a head when the Social Democrat Secretary for Defence tabled a new disarmament bill. The bill proposed that the army and the navy be transformed into military and naval neutrality guards, whose tasks would be to monitor the land borders and the territorial waters, and conscription was to be abolished. The Danish army was to become a surveillance institution only. The Conservatives, once again, were able to block the bill, 
but a compromise position was nonetheless reached, which allowed for a drastic 10% reduction to the already greatly shrunken defence budget, a compromise that was tabled under the euphemistic term of reorganisation. Once again, the Danish army was shrunk in size, down from the 32 battalions budgeted for in 1922 to now just 24, with additional cuts to the size of the Danish navy. In addition, the once mighty obstacle of Fortress Copenhagen was left to stagnate, and with no funds allocated for continued manning or maintenance, it effectively ceased to exist at the end of the 1920s. Both the Danish Minister of Defence, as well as the head of the army, felt that developments in air power in the interwar period meant that the preservation of the capital as a fortified city was hopeless, and even went so far as to call such fortifications ridiculous monstrosities. However, given the generally peaceful development of Weimar Germany in the late 1920s and 1930s, the various international treaties signed at the time, as well as the promise of the early League of Nations, Denmark's decision to significantly disarm was not entirely irrational. It only became more questionable when the international environment changed in the 1930s. In the later 1930s, at a number of political conferences, the new Danish Minister for Defence, Thorvald Storning, tried to persuade the Danish government to increase financing to the military sector and improve the Danish defence position, and his position was backed by the Conservatives as well as by the British and French ambassadors. In November 1938, the British minister in Copenhagen, Patrick Ramsey, expressed the opinion that, and I quote, Denmark's defence, in size and equipment, should give expression to her will to defend herself, both Zeeland, Jutland and her territorial waters, to the best of her ability. What makes Denmark unusual in Europe in this period is that there was never any serious consideration given towards rearmament, although tentative discussions remained ongoing within the cabinet. Indeed, in 1937, the size of the Danish armed forces was cut still further, with the number of yearly recruits reduced from 8,900 to only 7,800, despite the fact that the international situation had changed significantly and become very dangerous by this period. The defenceless character of Danish neutrality in the interwar period, although disputed, was preserved even in the face of a new German threat to the south, and although other contemporary European neutrals faced similar pressures to divert defence spending to welfare, they never pursued disarmament as extensively or for as long as the Danish government in the interwar period. This brings us on to the League of Nations, an organisation Denmark joined in 1920. The decision to join provoked an internal debate about whether membership of the League was compatible with a classical definition of neutrality, which it was not, and whether the duty to undertake sanctions committed Denmark to a higher level of defence, which the right and the Liberal Party insisted it did, but which the Social Democrats and the Radical Liberals denied. One of the stated aims of the League of Nations was general disarmament, and the Social Democratic governments thought that Denmark ought to lead by example and disarm. The League of Nations was strongly backed by the aforementioned pacifist Foreign Secretary Munch. In his view, the League of Nations supplemented by other international treaties were the guarantors of peace on the continent. Disarmament was an obligation, and it was the logical thing to do. Munch chose to believe in the sufficiency of the League of Nations security guarantees, and for a long time after the faith in the League had waned in other European states, he was not prepared to rule out the possibility of a League coming to the aid of Denmark in a border dispute with Germany. Munch regarded it as impossible to achieve any form of security, either through rearmament or through help from the Nordic countries. He could see only one possibility, to stick to the League of Nations, weak though it might be. 
Denmark backed the League imposed sanctions against Italy in 1935, and it was only gradually and with reluctance, after the Western powers had taken the lead in dismantling collective security, that Denmark gradually distanced itself from the League of Nations' commitment to sanctions and collective action, and returned to a more isolated neutrality by 1938. With the failure of both the League of Nations and any prospect of Scandinavian unity for defence, a diplomatic approach to Britain was made instead. The Social Democratic Prime Minister, Thorvald Stowning, contacted the British government during a visit to London in 1937 without the knowledge or approval of the Foreign Secretary. It is still uncertain precisely how serious this approach was, but there was certainly no comfort to be drawn by the response of the Foreign Secretary, Anthony Eden, who clearly stated that Britain would be almost completely unable to give military aid to Denmark in the event of an armed conflict with Germany. With Denmark lacking any kind of commitment to credible defence in pursuit of its neutrality, Britain remained unwilling to extend Denmark the sort of guarantee that was given to Poland. British military officials were also deeply uninterested in extending any promises to Denmark, and a report written in May of 1937 by the British Chiefs of Staff concluded that, in any event, no military action which we could take would prevent Germany gaining control of Denmark if she wished to do so, and anything we might attempt would only result in a useless dispersion of force. The growth in power of the German navy in the 1930s, as well as the new Luftwaffe, meant that operations in the Baltic by the Royal Navy were now largely deemed as too risky, and so British operational concern about the fate of Denmark declined still further. Indeed, in 1935, Britain had already signed the Anglo-German Naval Agreement, which conceded the right for the German navy to expand to one-third the size of the Royal Navy, while Britain would withdraw its navy from the Baltic Sea. In practice, this agreement gave complete control over the Kattegat and the Baltic to Germany, making Denmark once again dependent on its relations with its militant southern neighbour. Given that both the League and any kind of pact with Britain seemed to be non-options, Denmark's isolated position meant that the primary aim had to be to inspire German confidence in Danish neutrality. It was, as one historian has called it, a foreign policy characterised by passivity and defeatism, as elements of the Danish government set out to curb and moderate anti-German sentiments in the population. Starting in 1935, Denmark made no attempt to condemn German rearmament and then withdrew from the League of Nations system of sanctions in order to avoid even the possibility that such a system might one day be aimed at Berlin. In 1938, the regulations governing neutrality were modified to comply with German requests for free passage through Denmark for its planes and warships, an act that drew criticism from normally understanding governments in London and Paris. The new German Kriegsmarine was then permitted to hold manoeuvres in Danish territorial waters, and the Danish police were then permitted to cooperate with the Gestapo in the fight against international communism. The Danish Ministry for Foreign Affairs even moved to censor the press. Danish newspaper editors frequently used the euphemism having tea with Dr. Munk, the foreign secretary, when they were being called on to curb their criticism of the Nazi regime to their south. The German Foreign Service was able to use this willingness to censor to its advantage, and was even able to get particularly troublesome Danish journalists fired. Although a small minority protested, in general, Danish media and other cultural institutions complied with the government's requests for self-censorship. The high watermark of its policy of appeasement came at the end of May 1939, when Denmark, alone of the Nordic countries, accepted the offer of a pact of non-aggression with Germany, even though no one in the Danish government believed in its probability of being observed in a general European conflict. 
Instead, the pact was simply used as propaganda by Germany to try and blunt criticisms of its aggressive intentions, especially concerning the United States. In economic terms, too, the case for neutrality was still as overwhelming as it had been during the First World War. In 1931, both Britain and Germany reduced their imports of Danish agricultural products as a result of the Great Depression. The effect on the export-orientated Danish economy was devastating, as these two countries alone accounted for about 80% of total Danish exports, and the resulting currency crisis and rise in unemployment demonstrated the absolute necessity of a balancing act of neutrality. In general, Denmark was not as exposed to the effect of the economic downturn of the 1930s as other nations, and Denmark managed economic growth of 2.7% per year between 1919 and 1939. But just as previously seen, Denmark still lacked a significant heavy industrial base and any real armament sector, in marked contrast to its northern Swedish neighbour. In 1939, agricultural products, primarily bacon, butter, eggs and cattle, still accounted for 73% of all Danish exports, whilst industry's share of exports was only 22%, although by the end of the 1930s this was gradually starting to change, with 30% of all imported raw materials then being used for industrial purposes. The biggest single factor that prevented total Danish acquiescence to German demands was the continued greater importance of Britain as an export market, as by 1939 more than half of all Danish exports still went to the UK, versus only 23% to its southern neighbour. Indeed, in all of Europe, only the new Irish Free State was more dependent on Britain as an export outlet. Denmark was partly strong-armed into signing a trade agreement highly favourable to Britain in 1933, and in February of that year, Denmark even became a member of the sterling bloc, with the Danish krone pegged to the value of sterling. At the outbreak of the war, therefore, Britain was easily the dominant trading partner, but Germany was no less indispensable, not least as a counterbalance to Britain. In order to avoid dependency on one market, a balance had to be maintained between the two great powers, and a policy of neutrality was an essential precondition for the achievement of this. Denmark was also still particularly reliant on fodder and coal imports from Britain, and it was this fact that helped to show some German decision-makers the value of possible Danish neutrality in any coming conflict, as Germany's own drive for agricultural self-sufficiency was far from complete by the late 1930s. Denmark was still a potentially valuable source of foodstuffs, and German economic analysis and IG Farben, who played a significant role as advisors to German government departments and military planners, thought that Danish butter, pork products and eggs could play a valuable role in the German war economy, even if the UK were to cut off imports of fodder to Denmark. This leads us on to a discussion about the overall threat posed by Germany to Danish neutrality in this period. Strangely enough, much of German planning against Denmark was based on its own naval weakness compared to the First World War, and the desperate need to secure Danish and Norwegian naval bases to help counterbalance this problem. German naval planners were also determined to avoid repeating the experience of the Imperial German Navy, largely bottled up in port and shielded by Danish naval mines during the First World War. If a new German Kriegsmarine was to avoid this, a way was needed to enable some offensive action without risking the complete destruction of a small German surface fleet. The coast of Norway seemed to offer at least a partial solution to this dilemma by allowing the possibility to break into the Atlantic and raid British commercial routes. In order to allow the occupation of Norwegian ports, Denmark too would have to face invasion, as the Jutland Peninsula was deemed essential in any potential operations against southern Norway, as an attack against Norway alone 
would be far too prone to interdiction by the British Royal Navy. Indeed, the British Admiralty was certain that they could keep the west coast of Norway out of German hands, and felt that a German occupation of Denmark alone might make the German Navy more venturesome in the North Sea, and thus increase the chances of actually engaging their smaller opponent. Perhaps the supreme irony of all this is that with the fall of France in the summer months of 1940, the German Navy gained access to the Atlantic through the ports on the French coast anyway. This completely changed the strategic picture for the German Navy, and access to Norwegian ports through Denmark was no longer anywhere near as important. Although counterfactual history is obviously fraught with difficulties, it is perhaps the case that had the German invasion of Denmark in April of 1940 been somewhat delayed, then a successively imminent German Western offensive might have spared both Denmark and Norway from five years of occupation, although the need to guard the vital Swedish Einar route may still have provoked Hitler into taking eventual military action. The important issue of Swedish Einar exports to Germany will be discussed in greater detail at a future podcast. In rascher Fahrt geht es von den Bahnstationen zu den in kürzester Zeit ausgebauten Geschützstellungen an der dänischen Küste, die jede feindliche Landung unmöglich machen werden. When war finally broke out in Europe, Denmark proclaimed its neutrality on the 3rd of September 1939, with the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs regarding the conflict as largely an imperialist struggle between the great powers, although Danish public opinion was, in contrast, strongly pro-British. When British planes accidentally attacked a town on the North Sea coast, most of the population, to the dismay of the Danish government, were firmly convinced that they had been attacked by German bombers. Attacks such as these by the Royal Air Force soon led to the installation of anti-aircraft cannons in southern Schleswig, to guard against accusations by the Germans that Denmark was unable to defend itself against British breaches of its neutrality. For the same reason, a battalion of Danish infantry was stationed in North Jutland, to guard against theoretical British landings, or, more importantly, to signal to Berlin a willingness to guard against such landings. As before, in the autumn of 1914, the Danes were confronted with a request to mine the Straits, with the German Navy claiming that enemy submarines had been detected in the Baltic. Yet unlike in 1914, no great debate occurred in the halls of Danish government about the implications for their neutrality, and the mines were quickly and simply laid. The British Royal Navy started its blockade, exactly where it had successfully left off in 1918. Lists of contraband were drawn up, control of exports was demanded, as well as a ban on the re-export of certain goods to Germany, and a comprehensive system of supervision on neutral shipping, including Denmark's, was imposed. The British government was in the process of forcing Danish agricultural products to be supplied at artificially low prices to reduce the scope of any exports to Germany, but the agreement had only just been signed by the time the German forces crossed into Jutland in April of 1940. The Germans, on the other hand, were interested in importing as much as possible from Denmark, but had to accept that the Danish government, in order to maintain a balance with Britain, could not really exceed the 1939 level of exports, and an agreement was hammered out within a month, without any major problems. At the beginning of September 1939, German warships, on the order of a naval high command, began to torpedo and seize Danish ships on their way to and from Britain, but fears by German diplomats that such an action would prove economically counterproductive and lead to a drastic drop in Danish agricultural exports to Germany meant that such actions were soon halted. This resulted in the so-called Maltese Cross Arrangement, 
which allowed the export of Danish food products to England in special ships and under strict supervision, and only on condition that trade with Germany was maintained. It was a secret agreement, and it is a good illustration of a difficult balancing act that neutral Denmark was forced to take between the belligerents. November saw the Soviet Union's attack on Finland in the so-called Winter War, which although of greater concern in Oslo and Stockholm, was also closely followed in Copenhagen. There were fears that Norway and Sweden might be eventually drawn into the conflict, or that Britain and France might send weapons and soldiers to Finland through either northern Scandinavia or the Baltic route. Either scenario would greatly increase the likelihood of German counteraction against Denmark, and so there was a sense of great relief in March of 1940 when a peace treaty was signed, removing the pretext for any action by either the Allies or Germany. The early months of 1940 also saw a sudden escalation of the war at sea, as 12 Danish ships, including two Maltese cross ships, were torpedoed and 143 Danish mariners killed, with a number of other ships attacked by the Luftwaffe. This led directly to pleas by Danish shipping magnates to start sailing in British convoys, but the idea was rejected by the Danish government for fear of provoking Germany. When the German invasion finally came in April, Danish leaders had not considered the possibility that their neutrality would be violated merely as a stepping stone to wider strategic objectives in the form of Norwegian ports. In fact, the key incident that led to a German decision to invade had not involved Denmark at all. The event has become known as the Altmark Affair, or Altmark Incident, which took place on the 16th of February 1940, when a British ship cornered a German prison ship in Norwegian territorial waters and set the British sailors free, without the Norwegian Navy taking any action. On the 2nd of April, the fateful decision was then made by Hitler to initiate Operation Weserübung, and at 3.55am on the 9th of April 1940, German armed forces crossed into Denmark on their way to secure Norway. Initially, it had been planned to confine German demands to air and naval bases and transit rights for the German army, reached by a political agreement with the Danish government. After all, the main point of the operation was simply to use Jutland as a transit area and North Jutland as a point of embarkation for German troops heading to Norway. The Danish government simply failed to understand the operational link between Northern Denmark and access to Norway and the Atlantic, and when it received prescient reports of concentrations of German troops and ships in the Baltic on the 4th of April, these were dismissed with the explanation that they were aimed at Norway rather than Denmark, and would probably only be used in the event of a British attack. A request by the Danish commander-in-chief, General Viff, to order mobilisation was declined on the grounds that it might send out the wrong signals to Germany. On the 8th of April, the day before the invasion, the Germans moved a division up to the Danish border but it was still hoped that this was a prelude to more aggressive German diplomatic demands and not an actual invasion, perhaps a military backup before a formal request for transit rights. At the very least, it was felt that the Germans would issue a final ultimatum, but the next day the invasion occurred without any formal notification at all, and, technically, with the Danish-German non-aggression pact still in force. The small 15,000-strong Danish army, having been deliberately reduced by successive spending cuts in 1922, 1932 and 1937 were not able to offer any real resistance and were in poor shape compared to the 58,000 man Danish army that had been available in 1914. Half of the army was stationed in Jutland, the other half on the Danish islands. By 1940, the only activities the Danish armed forces could effectively carry out were to prevent accidental breaches of neutrality, such as overflights or accidental crossings of a border, but not to engage in a battle for the country's existence. The small Danish army had been deployed away from the border 
to avoid the possibility of any accidental engagements that might lead to a warlike situation and might escalate out of control. Of even greater importance was the lack of any national redoubt. Fortress Copenhagen was no more, and so the decision to surrender to German demands was soon reached. It was obvious that any armed resistance would be merely symbolic. In all, only 16 Danish soldiers were killed, with half of the small Danish air force being destroyed on the ground. Of note in the campaign were German paratroop operations used to capture two airfields and a small fort in northern Jutland, which turned out to be the first airborne operations ever carried out in military history. A German mine layer was able to sail straight into the harbour at Copenhagen unopposed, and, in conjunction with a landed German regiment, forced the Danish government to surrender only a few hours after the commencement of operations, the shortest campaign ever conducted by Germany during the war. Unusually, however, Germany offered to preserve Denmark's territorial integrity and political independence in return for an immediate laying down of arms, due to the fact that German strategic interest in Denmark was limited and the overriding concern was the success of the Operation Further North against Norway. The Danish Royal Navy was also unable to respond to the German invasion, as its senior leadership had convinced itself that the Germans would have no wish to occupy Denmark, which already lay within their sphere of interest. The Navy had been positioned in northern waters to act against any potential threat to breaches of its neutrality by the British Royal Navy, and it was thought that it was Denmark's ability to protect its neutrality against any British intervention that would be perceived as more valuable by decision-makers in Berlin. Danish leaders were ready to grant any German demand for free passage through the Danish belts, but had felt that aggressive German demands were unlikely to occur until the so-called Z-Plan for German naval rearmament had been completed by roughly 1943. In fact, deeply worried about aggressive British naval action against Norway, Danish political leaders felt that it was London that held the key to whether Germany would retaliate or not. This explains why the Danish Foreign Secretary Munch actually blamed Britain on the day of a German invasion for the occupation of Denmark. The Danish Social Democratic government was now fully banking on the concept of social defence. The Danish nation would hopefully endure, independent of state and territory, as long as its people could survive as a social, political and cultural unit. As for the actual events of the German occupation of Denmark, these will be covered in a future podcast, although it should be remarked that the Danish emphasis on social cohesion, a strong societal nationalism and strong welfare institutions were reinforced during the German occupation and helped to ensure the survival of the Danish people. The decision to offer minimal resistance to the invasion is undoubtedly part of the reason why Denmark suffered probably the least harm and destruction in Hitler's Europe, even if the belief that it held on to its neutrality under occupation is best described as a polite fiction. After the end of the war, Denmark entered into discussions in 1947 and 48 about another potential Nordic defensive bloc to guard neutrality, but no firm commitments were reached before they were superseded by a decision to join NATO a year later in 1949. Okay, that concludes this week's History Matters podcast. If you have any questions about this episode, or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. 
Next time, the European Neutral Series will be continuing on with Neutral Norway, from its independence as a state from Denmark in the early part of the 19th century and going up to the end of the First World War. I do hope you can join me for that. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time. Yeah.